G'day there, I'm Adam Spencer and this is Telstra Behind the Mic, a series of ideas, discussions and exchanges focused on insights, inspirations and innovations. You could say it's a series where we'd like you to think smarter, faster, better. And that's certainly the expertise of today's guest, Charles Dewey. People who are who tend to be very successful, they tend to be much more creative or seen as being much more creative than others. And one of my favorite examples of this is Frozen, right? Everyone knows this movie, Frozen. Huge hit. What most people don't know about Frozen is that it was on the brink of catastrophe until literally just two months before it appeared in movie theater. Dewey's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of two books, The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. I met Charles at Telstra Vantage and I found him to be a great storyteller. And in the context of business stories, these are not the usual ones we hear. People get an idea, people form a company, people have success, people retire as quazillionaires. Asterix, there's no such number as a quazillion. But, in fact, very few businesses have that story. Charles' stories are about people, about companies, about teams, stories of success and of failure. Stories that if you read them and act on them, you just might find yourself getting smarter, faster, and better. If you can take those studies and those lessons and you can tell them in stories in a way that people enjoy listening to them, then you're literally giving them the tools to change their lives. And one thing that I've heard again and again is this issue of habits that have come up again and again. How do you change habits? How do we influence habits? What do we know about the neurology and the psychology of habits? And most importantly, what are the habits that seem to distinguish people who are uniquely productive or companies that are uniquely productive? To best explain what Charles means, let's apply this logic to habit. And in this case, a bit of a naughty habit. You see, most afternoons at work, Charles would walk down to his cafeteria to have a biscuit, or as our American friends would say, a cookie. Now, when his wife mentioned that he was putting on some, hmm, let's say, cookie handles, he decided he needed to change that habit. But to change it, he needed to understand why this action had become a habit in the first place. So I, I'm going to get all sort of therapist on you now, okay. Charles, and I want you to tell me about the cookies. <laughs> tell me about the cookies and the role they played in your life. Take me back so, to the cookies. So, so the first book I wrote was called The Power of Habit, right? It was about the science and neurology of habit formation. And there's this basic idea at the core of The Power of Habit, which is that every habit has three components. There's a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start, and then a routine, which is the behavior itself, and then finally a reward. Every habit has a reward, which is why our brain learns to do this thing automatically. And what we know from studies, and particularly the study that was done by a woman named Wendy Wood, who was at Duke University and is now at USC, is that about 40 to 45% of what we do every day are habits, right? We think we're making a bunch of choices, but it's actually just habits that unfold automatically. And each one of those has a cue, a routine, and a reward. So when I was learning this stuff, I was talking to researchers, and I had this bad habit that every afternoon I would, um, I would go up to the cafeteria and I would eat a cookie. And I was putting on a little bit of weight as a result. So I'm talking to these researchers, and I would say things like, you know, I've got this friend with a bad cookie habit. <laughs> Can you tell me, tell me, how do I use this framework, cue, routine, reward, to change their habit? And they said, okay, well, let's start with a cue, okay? Most cues fall into one of five categories. It's usually a time of day <laughs> or a particular place, um, a certain emotion, the presence of a, a certain people or a preceding behavior that's become ritualized. They said, whenever you feel the cookie urge, tell your friend, 
to write down those five things. Like, what time of day is it? You know, who else is nearby? How are they feeling? So I did this for a couple of days, and I realized pretty quickly the urge to eat a cookie, it always hit between 3.15 and 3.45 in the afternoon. My cue was a time of day. So now I know the cue for my habit, and I know the routine, which is to go up and get a cookie, and I just got to figure out the reward, and I can change the habit. So the researchers were like, what do you think the reward is? And I was like, oh, well, the reward's the cookie, right? It's delicious. And they said, no, 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 no. Rewards are much more complicated than that. A, a cookie is like a, a bundle of like 15 different rewards in one little package. So maybe maybe the reward is that you're hungry and the cookie is satisfying the hunger, in which case eating an apple should work just as well. Or maybe it's that you're craving sugar, in which case, you know, just spreading some like Splenda on your tongue should should cure that urge. Or maybe you just need a break from work, in which case getting up and taking a walk around the block, that would probably do as well as taking a walk to the cafeteria. And what they said is you need to experiment with each of these different things. Try and figure out if there's a way to sort of short circuit, satisfy this craving for a reward with another behavior. So I go through all these different things. I eat an apple, I take a walk around the block. And in about a week, what I realized of these experiments is that when I went up to the cafeteria to buy a cookie, I'd inevitably see some of my friends, right? And I'd go and I'd buy my cookie and then I'd go chat with my friends and gossip for 15 minutes. And what I realized is it was that socialization that was the reward that was driving this cookie habit. Not the sugar, not Not the the calories, not not the the cookie itself. It was getting a chance to socialize and talk to other people. The cookie had basically become this vehicle for a social urge that I had. And so once I knew this, once I knew, okay, so the cue is a certain time of day and the reward is that I want to go gossip with people. Once I had diagnosed this habit, I could change the behavior. So now every afternoon at about 3.15, I stand up and I look for someone in the newsroom where I work to go like, you know, gossip with. And I walk over to their desk and we gossip for 20 minutes. And then I go back to my desk and the cookie urge is totally gone. But the only reason I was able to change this habit is because I was able to diagnose the cues and the rewards. And this is what we know about how habit change happens, is that we don't, we don't just extinguish habits. We don't, we don't willpower our way through them. People who change habits are people who manage to figure out what the cues and the rewards are that are driving that behavior and to find a new behavior that corresponds to an old cue and delivers something similar to an old reward. That's how we change a habit. You have to recognize there's no such thing as a good habit or a bad habit, right? Our brain has an instinct to make things into habits. Our brain loves to conserve energy. And so when we can, when it finds a cue, a routine, a reward, it'll make that into a habit as often as it can. But for some people, what looks like a bad habit is a good habit. I like having a drink in the evening, right? Now, some people might say that's a bad habit, but it isn't for me. It's something that I enjoy. Now, for other people, um, they might exercise to the point of being really, really sore. And I would say, that seems like a terrible habit. But for them, it makes them feel in control. It's how they want to live their lives. And so the first thing I say when people come up and they say, I want to change my habits, I have bad habits, is to ask them, why? Why do you have this habit? Are you certain that it's something you actually want to change as opposed to society telling you that you ought to change that? And if you do want to change it, then great. We can tell you how. Right? Diagnose the cue. Diagnose the reward. You'll be able to find a different behavior that delivers something similar to that old reward. That's not the hard part. The hard part is figuring out which habits you actually care about enough that you really want to change them as opposed to you just feel like you should change them, but not for any good reason. 
Charles Dewig is a journalist by trade. He's a storyteller. But it's his way of bringing a simple story of habits, his own habits, that opens up that aha moment. And that's the basis of his first book, The Power of Habit. I've certainly never looked at a cookie the same way since. Now, Dewig's second book, Smarter, Faster, Better, explains that the most productive people in companies don't merely act differently. They view the world, they view their choices in profoundly different ways. As an example, here's a story that a father of two daughters like myself can relate to. A very familiar yarn of two princesses. People can deep dive into your book for more detail on this, but in brief, what do you mean by innovation-focused motivation? Well, so there's this interesting question, which is which habits seem to matter more than other others, right? What seems to be the defining characteristics of people who are uniquely productive or uniquely successful? And it seems to be that these three things, among others, but these three seem like the, some of the most important, is that people who, are, who tend to be very successful, they tend to be much more creative or seen as being much more creative than others. But oftentimes that creativity is not actually coming up with some brand new idea. It's not being an artist. It's actually just taking other ideas and mixing them together in new ways working out a new cocktail of existing things that works better or excites people. That's exactly right. And what's interesting about this is that we tend to think of creativity as something that um, that really only creative people can do. But all the studies, all the research indicates that that's not true. And one of my favorite examples of this is Frozen, right? Everyone knows this movie, Frozen. Huge hit. So what's interesting is I went and I talked to the, the team behind Disney. What most people don't know about Frozen is that it was on the brink of catastrophe until literally just two months before it appeared in movie theaters. They were recreating the script up until two months before it was it was shipped off and shown on, on movie screens. And when I asked them why this film was so successful, what they did is what they said is, it's not because we're really creative. It's not because we're innovative. It's because we have this very specific method that we use, which is we ask people to find old stories and try and mix them together in new ways. So to take Frozen as an example, they'd been struggling with this movie for two years. They couldn't figure out how to put it together. The script wasn't working. And they get everyone into this room and they say, okay, everyone go around and talk about your favorite idea or your favorite story that you want to talk about, that you want to tell through this movie. And they go around and the first thing that comes up is princesses, right? Disney knows princesses better than anyone. And they everyone wants to tell a new version of the princess story. Mm-hmm. The dad of two girls. I know, you know what you're talking about. Oh, you know yeah. princesses. And then they go I'm more an Ariel fan myself. Are you? Go, oh. <laughs> we, are, we all have our own, our own <laughs> favorites. And they go around and they say, okay, look, princess story. Like, what's new about it? How can we tell something new about a princess story? We've been telling princess stories for 400 years. And they go around and they say, what's another story you want to tell? Now, what's interesting about Frozen is an unusually large number of women were working on that project. In fact, the first female director in Disney's history was the co-director in Frozen. And they're going around the room and everyone's saying, look, the other story that's kind of just interesting to me is I have a sister. And I think stories about sisters are really interesting, right? Because, like, relationships between sisters, they're complicated. They, they, there's tension, but they, they still love each other. And, and, you know, and actually there's a lot of cliched stories. I mean, it's kind of a trope, right? Little women, um, you know, Tolstoy has a lot of stories about sisters. And so the director says, okay, look, we have two sort of pat stories, princesses and sisters. What if we just combine them together? And all of a sudden, people start saying things like, well, well, what if we had two sisters who were both princesses? If that happened, then maybe the princesses could save each other instead of the the prince saving the princess. And maybe if that happens, 
maybe then the prince is the bad guy, but we won't reveal that till the very end of the movie. In 45 minutes, they figure out how to write this movie, Frozen, that everyone who sees says is the most innovative, creative movie. They love this movie because it's so brand new. It's not new. What it is, is it's two old ideas, princesses and sisters jammed together that opened up all these possibilities in people's minds. And we know that this is how innovation works. Innovation occurs not because somebody has a brand new idea. Innovation occurs because somebody takes old ideas and mixes them together in new ways. And the reason why this is powerful is because it means anyone can be creative. Anyone can be an innovator. If you pay attention to all these cliched ideas around you, and try and figure out, how do I mix them in a new way? It's, it's amazing how we can even convince people to embrace something that their initial reaction is completely against. You use the great example of a pop song, you know, Hey Ya yeah. by Outkast, that's one of the most downloaded pop songs and biggest sellers of all time, monumental super hit. Originally, despite all the backing behind, it looked like it was going to be one of the great turkeys of pop music. Absolutely. How did they turn it around? Well, what's interesting is that the problem with Hey Ya, it's a great song, right? Everyone yeah. loves Hey yeah. Ya. The problem with it is it's so creative, it's so novel that when it first came out, people hated it because it sounded too new. It sounded too different, right? When you're listening to the radio, and you know this as someone who used to do radio, you, you love songs that sound familiar. And familiarity is at the core of why we accept some things the first time we're exposed to them or why we dismiss them. So what they did with Hey Yeah is they started a strategy on radio stations of sandwiching it among songs that are completely familiar, that sound familiar the first time you, you hear them. In particular, Maroon 5, right? Maroon oh. 5 is, a, is a, a genre of rock that's known as bath rock because it's so... Um, so unoffensive that every single song just sounds like a hit. They would take a Maroon 5 song and then they would play Hey Ya and then play another Maroon 5 song because by bundling Hey Ya in this sandwich of comfort and familiarity, they trained people, they convinced people to listen to Hey Ya and after they listened to it a couple of times, they learned to like it. But this is what we know is that novelty is actually very hard to accept at first. And so we have to sometimes trick ourselves into listening to something new or eating something new or hearing or seeing something new by putting it in a familiar context. The amazing Charles Dewig, and I don't know about you, but Jerk could knock over a sandwich of comfort and novelty myself right now. I should also quickly mention another great interview in this series with Freakonomics author Stephen Dubner. Like Dewig, a great storyteller. Dubner brings together many small truths by aggregating human data. And the sum of these truths will change the way you look at everything from economics and work to politics. Basically, I'm transfixed by cause and effect. I love to understand what truly makes something happen. And often it's a lot harder than you'd think to figure it out. And often the reasons that uh, established experts will give for something are totally BS, <laughs> especially in the political sphere. And so that's kind of what, what I like as a writer is trying to figure out something literally as simple as what is the X that causes the Y? Or maybe it's, you know, not just X, maybe there's a bunch of other factors. Yeah, take a listen to Stephen Dubner, who in a nice way asks you to think like a freak. And now back to more stories from journalist Charles Duick. We've looked at habits and how being familiar is better for success. But I also want to know about the concept of hard work, of being busy. We all do this. We all say how hard we worked, but often we get nowhere. Well, this is when we got to focus. 
Our brain, while an incredibly powerful organ, machine, evolved in a different age. And it evolved at a time when multitasking was almost universally good. So an eon ago, if you were the type of person who could multitask, if you could both plant crops and look for predators at the same time, you were like killing it, right? Like you were much, much better off than your neighbors. But as everyone in this room knows, that is no longer true. Now simply being able to multitask is not only an advantage, it's often a disadvantage. Focus, one of the critical factors you think. What do you mean when you talk about focus? Well, so in today's world, one of the things we know is that distractions are constant, right? Mm. This gets at, at one of the big distinctions now about productivity, which is that there is a difference between being busy and being productive. You can be busy all day long. I'm sure that you probably mm. have a hundred emails just waiting for you to read them, right? And you could spend the rest of the day replying to those emails and feel like you got something done when it mm. might not be They're the best. Then we all know. Yeah. yeah, and all that will happen the next day is you'll have 200 emails because all of a sudden people will start replying. So what we know is that the most productive people, they tend to be very good at governing their attention, at learning what, how to train their brain to focus on what matters and ignore distractions. And the way that we do this is by telling ourselves stories about ourselves. So we know that, for instance, firefighters, when they walk into a burning building, the best firefighters, the ones who know what to pay attention to and what to ignore in a split second, they have this habit of telling themselves a story about what they expect to see in a burning room the second they walk in. They say, oh, the corner's going to be on fire and there's a staircase over there and, and I think there's going to be more flames on top of the staircase. And then they walk in and they look in the room and they see corners on fire and the staircase. The staircase has fewer flames above it than were in the story inside my head. And something inside their attention goes, stay away from that staircase. There's something wrong with that staircase. Pay attention to this warning sign. This happens again and again, that the people who seem to be best at marshalling their attention, it's because they train themselves to tell them stories about what's going on as it occurs. And we all have this habit, right? Where you're riding in the car and you think about a tough conversation that's coming up, you play it in your head again and again and again. The people who are really productive, they are in that habit in a way that's not distracting. And they, they think about the meeting that's coming up. And instead of saying simply, oh, the meeting starts at 11, I need to bring that memo with me. They think the meeting's starting at 11, and it's going to start with Jim bringing up that one idea he always brings up. It's a terrible idea. Susan's going to disagree with him and say that's a terrible idea, and they're going to start fighting with each other. And then I'm going to bring up my idea, and I'm going to win the meeting because that's exactly the right moment to bring it up. The more that we tell ourselves stories about ourselves, what we, we engage in what psychologists call building mental models— the more we train our attention to focus on what matters. And motivation is really critical, right? Because what we know is that you can have the best of intentions, but in today's world, if you're not motivated to actually focus on your goals and to make good choices, you can be endlessly distracted. And so what we know about motivation is that we tend to motivate ourselves when we feel like we're in control. It's interesting. I was talking to this one researcher when I was writing Smarter, Faster, Better, who was a, uh, an MD, PhD at Oxford. And he told me the thing that he hates most is grading students' papers. So he used to have a real trouble motivating himself to, to grade students' papers because it's just super boring. And he said, so what he does now is before he has to grade students' papers, he tells himself a mantra. He says, I'm going to choose which question to start grading first. 
And if I grade these students' papers, then I will be able, then the university can charge them tuition dollars. And if the university can charge them tuition dollars, they can pay for my research. And if they can pay for my research, I can go do my cancer research. And if I do my cancer research, I'm going to save thousands of people's lives. So by choosing which question to, to grade first, I will in effect be saving thousands of people's lives. Now, this is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense, right? What's equally ridiculous is that an MD, PhD has to tell himself a mantra in order to motivate to grade students' papers, and yet it works. The reason why he's an MD, PhD, why he has the motivation to do these incredibly hard tasks that you need to do, years of study, is because he's in the habit of finding some way to put himself in control, to reframe grading students' papers as saving people's lives. We know that neurologically, motivation becomes active in our brains when we feel like we're making a choice that puts us in control. If you can change a chore into a choice, it's easier to motivate. And as researchers have looked at productivity and why some people are more productive than others, particularly why some people seem to be more innovative than others, what they found is that the ones who are most innovative, they tend to have some type of habit that they rely on that forces them to think about the ideas they're being exposed to that feels like work. Or put differently, we become innovation brokers by exposing ourselves to varied experiences and then forcing ourselves to think about them. With the work that you're doing, which is about, uh, it's lifestyle advice, it's how-to, it's self-help in the broadest definition. Yeah. But it, you, you bring in a fair degree of scientific rigour into it. A lot of the books in the self-help space don't bring great scientific rigour into what they're doing. I think that's fair to say. Is it a challenging space to try and, and get a voice? Is it a challenging space to be in? No, I think it's exactly the opposite. Like, we are living through this golden age of finally understanding how the brain works in ways that even 20 years ago, nobody would have imagined, right? For the first time, we understand how habits work in our brains, we understand why some people are more productive. We can use data to figure out why some people are more productive than others and to figure out why they are more productive. And the power of habit and smarter, faster, better, it's like just going out and collecting these like gems that are lying on the ground because there is so much science telling us how to actually be more successful, to be happier, to have more control over our lives. And scientists write for scientists, right? I'm married to a scientist. Scientists write in ways that are sometimes hard to absorb. But if you can take those studies and those lessons and you can tell them in stories in a way that people enjoy listening to them, then you're literally giving them the tools to change their lives. And if you had to guess, if 100 people, 100 random people buy one of your books and read them, how many of those 100 do you think make significant changes to their lives based on some of those principles. It might not tick off every single thing and complete, but how many people do you think genuinely do something different as a result of engaging with your work? I think a lot, based on what people tell me, I think a lot of people, and, and it doesn't, for some people, it doesn't necessarily happen right away. Sometimes, you know, we've all experienced this. Sometimes you read, you get exposed to an idea, and six months later, finally, you, you sort of figure out how to make it work in your life. But here's the thing that, that like, I am certain of, is that, we know that any habit can be changed. We know that anyone can change. We know that there is someone in Australia who has been smoking for the last 20 years and they will have their last cigarette today and will never smoke again. There is someone probably listening to this 
who is overweight and tomorrow they will start losing weight and they'll keep it off until they die. Any habit can be changed. We know this from studies. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long that behavior has existed. We know now how change occurs. It comes from diagnosing why we're behaving the way that we are, looking for those cues and those rewards, thinking about how to find alternative behaviors that help us help us change, help us evolve out of this, this cycle that we're stuck in. Any habit can be changed. It's just a matter of learning the tools that you need in order to do it. And whether it's my book or any of the other fantastic books that are out there or any of the research that's out there or just listening to a podcast, once you have those tools, it's incredibly empowering. Charles Duhigg's books explore and explain our behaviour, but then they also challenge us to change our behaviour. His work is part sociological research, part advice column, part common sense. Charles certainly does tell a great yarn that'll make you laugh, if only at your own expense. So thank you so much to Charles Duhigg, and please also check out some of the other podcasts in this series with great guests like Anusa Ansari on space travel and our drawing from her childhood fulfilled a dream. Stephen Dubner, the author of Freakonomics, and how Daniel Pink unearthed the secret motivation behind perfect... Timing. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Behind the Mic.